Hey everyone, it's uh, David Barnett from davidcbarnett.com, the podcast, YouTube channel, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, wherever they'll have me podcast. And today I'm talking with my guest, Terry Lammers, who is the author of You Don't Know What You Don't Know. Terry has been a business owner. He's sold a business. He's worked at a bank. He's now a coach that talks with business owners about issues regarding running their businesses and about buying and selling them. Um, We're going to be talking a little bit about employees when a business is being sold. But Terry, uh, I wanted to have you step in and give us a little bit about your background. Can you fill out that profile I, I, I set out there? Absolutely. And thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, so I grew up in a little town called Pierron, Illinois, which is about 30 miles east of St. Louis. Family business. Uh, we sold wholesale fuel and lubricants, so gasoline and diesel fuel and motor oils, hydraulic oils to farmers, trucking companies, um, excavating companies, industrial accounts, stuff like that. Uh, I see where you're at. You know, we don't have a whole lot of ships in uh, the middle of the United States here in Illinois, so not a whole lot of maritime stuff. But uh, uh, I grew up in the company, had the opportunity to come back in 1991. Uh, The company wasn't doing so well at the time. When I came back to the company, I jokingly say it was me, my mom and dad. We had two trucks and it was a good day if they both started. (laughs) (laughs) But I knew we had the opportunity. We had the opportunity to buy another company from a guy that was retiring and uh, that would put us back in the black. So anyway, uh, that all transpired. I kind of took the company over and over the course of the next 20 years, had the opportunity to buy 11 other companies oh, wow. from $750,000 a year in sales to over 42 million. So in 2010, I sold that to a $6 billion agronomy company and uh, sat around home for three months and my wife told me I had to get a job. So apparently our home is a... So you actually executed the roll-up strategy that a lot of people talk about in the world of mergers and acquisitions. You, you yeah. bubbled up a whole bunch of businesses, made yourself into a bigger concern, and then sold it to the proverbial you know, big, bigger fish. Yeah, I ended up being one of the largest, if not the largest, wholesale fuel and lubricants guy in Southern Illinois. So I was a very attractive to the company that bought me. I mean, there's a, a very strong strategic region for them buying my company. It was like a hole in their map kind of thing, like a place where they weren't as active as they wanted to be. So there's two sides to it. So it was an agronomy company that bought us a co-op. And okay. so you have the mothership, which is Grow Marketing. They have their member companies, which are called F estimate, you know, F farm service. So the, for okay. the FSs, the local FSs, <clears throat> excuse me, I was their, you know, I was the largest guy. I was the pain in their side. What I didn't know until after the sale was Growmark had recently bought a lubricants blending facility, and I had a lubricants packaging facility in Southern Illinois. Oh. So they then that that was the whole. So they wanted to get into the bulk oil market in Southern Illinois where they had no gallons. You know, by buying me, they immediately had a half million gallons in sale, and they was in the business. You know. Yeah. In the okay. facility to boot, so it was a very it was a very strategic acquisition. So, so yeah, so uh, that was very interesting. And interestingly enough, from the time we signed the LOI to closing was six weeks. So, and that was selling to nine different companies. So, um, I did the banking thing, and in uh, 2014, we started Innovative Business Advisors, and 
um, we do brokerage business valuation in, in our coaching program. And when you were at the bank, you were, you were financing business loans. So you had a, a chance to observe M&A activity from the lending side. Yeah. So that was kind of neat because obviously in, in buying 11 different companies and selling mine, I'd done a lot of lending. I mean, I had a $4 million line of credit and all that fun stuff. Uh, so it was interesting to see the banking from the other side of the fence, you know, yeah. and, and really get an understanding of credit and how they're looking um, at the collateral and discounting your collateral, all that stuff that would drive you crazy as a business owner. And, you know, and other things like industries they didn't want to be in, you know, um, the bank I was with had moratorium on construction and, and, um, non-owner, non-owner occupied real estate. They didn't want to do certain types of farm loans. So, uh, that was interesting also. Would, would that be driven because they didn't like the sector or they just found that they were overexposed because of some other deals they had done and they were just kind of looking at it from a portfolio point of view? Yeah. And I would, my, I think the answer to that is both. Okay. Sometimes they don't like the sector, you know, or they do feel like they, cause I asked the underwriters that exact same thing. What, what, what's the deal? You know, the worst part was they would have non-owner occupied real estate loans that was on a balloon coming due and they wouldn't even renew them. I mean, they were just telling the people to go someplace else. Yeah. Uh, so that, you know, imagine being a business owner and all of a sudden, you know, you have a note that renews the bank says they won't, you know, renew it. You still owe all this money. Oh, I know three people who've been through it. I, yeah. It's, yeah. It happens more than people would ever believe. You yeah. Know? So, so yeah, a bank's not a bank. Always talk to more than one bank. <laughs> I mean, a bank, there's it, not just, you need to talk to more than one bank. That didn't come out quite right. <laughs> yeah. So, so one of the things that, that you have talked at length about is, is the, the problem of communicating the fact that the deal is going to happen to the employees of the business. Because, and, and, and I talk a lot about why we have to keep these deals confidential from employees because of all the reasons that it can freak them out. You know, that most employees are living paycheck to paycheck. They don't have a lot of savings. They get their business education from headlines. So sometimes when they hear a big business, a business is up for sale, they equate that with the businesses in trouble and that can make them fearful and people are fearful of change. And, and even if, they know there's going to be a successful transaction. They're afraid that the new owner maybe isn't going to like them or there's going to be some kind of change that they're not going to be okay with. And so we need to keep it secret from them. But at a certain point, they're going to have to know that the business has a new owner. And right. so, so I mean, how is the best way to, to broach this topic with people that work at the business? Yeah. So the, I would, I would start out by saying there's no perfect way. And every deal is different. I mean, I've done, <clears throat> I bought companies where we didn't tell a single employee until the day it happened. Mm -hmm. I've bought companies where they all knew it the day, you know, before it happened. I've also done it where we've talked to key employees and planning a strategy of how you're going to merge the two businesses together, but not all the employees knew it. Uh, but confidentiality is a huge thing. Uh, one of the phrases that I've said repeatedly, because you're exactly right, people don't like change. It's just, I think it's our natural in us. But one of my key phrases I always say is keep an open mind. Just tell your employees, keep an open mind. This is going to work out. You know, it's just like you said, uh, we want this to be a profitable deal. Unfortunately, there is circumstances where you've got to let employees go because of the merger. So that's not fun. But um 
but you know, you also run into situations. I had to deal with a company that we were selling where the the owner's husband and wife did a really good job of building the company that, you know, they could leave for two weeks and go on vacation, right? There was two key employees that could run the business. Mm-hmm. What so happened, this would have happened to be an environmental drilling company, that the people buying it was another husband and wife. He was an engineer, MBA, but he'd never done environmental drilling. He needed these two people. So at the last minute, literally two weeks before closing, we have to have this conversation. Are you going to make those two key people sign a an employment agreement with a non-compete in it, and maybe you're going to pay in something? Or are you going to go to them and say, hey, we're going to be the new owners. We plan on starting a profit sharing plan and just let it go as is, right? Well, all, so a lot of money must spent with attorneys on this, but ultimately, these are blue-collar workers. They've never signed an employment agreement. And we just felt like, you know, if you come and throw that piece of paper in front of them, one, you're probably going to delay things because they're going to want an attorney to look at, but what's the chance they're going to say, the heck with you, I'm not going to work for you and leave. And that could kill your deal, you know. But, you know, ultimately, I, I think you, when you're, especially when you're buying smaller companies, uh, you, you do confidentiality and the timing of when you tell the employees is important because the other thing, these people, a lot of these employees that you're right are living paycheck to paycheck. Where do they go at night? I go to the tavern. Well, but the whole point is they're going to talk. And yeah. then the next thing you know, your competitor finds out and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, you know, there, there are definitely some things that I've come across where I can tell people is not the way to let employees know. Um, a friend of mine is an IT guy in a big company and they acquired a smaller company and the people at the smaller company were told that the deal was finalizing on Monday and they sent this guy on Friday because they wanted him to initiate the integration of the computer network at this, at this company. They were going to become a branch of the bigger outfit. And so he showed up there on a Friday with 14 sets of usernames and passwords to face a group of 18 people. <laughs> Do the math on that. <laughs> right. And so, so, you know, that was definitely not the way to handle it because clearly people immediately realized, Hey, I don't get a username and password for the computer system. I'm, I'm obviously I'm out. And you know, the, the employees, they need the paycheck. And mm-hmm. so sometimes you know, they may not leave immediately, but if they are some of the best employees, they always have employment options. And this is one of the things I try to drive into sellers' minds is a thing why confidentiality is so important is within a certain industry in, a, in any community, the competitors always know who the best workers are at the other people's firms. And so if one of those top people goes looking for a job, a competitor might decide to hire them just to hurt the other company. Yeah. Right. Well, so knowing you, that they're a top person, you touch on a couple of things. One, um, you you want no matter what you do, you want to be careful about the culture of the two different companies, and it's really something to look at before you even buy the company. I mean, I have a friend um, up in in Canada actually, and before she'll buy a company, uh, that's the first thing she looks at before she looks at the financial statements. You know, so. Uh, the other thing I would encourage people to do is even the first, when you first take that company over, don't go in there with blazing saddles, wanting to change everything on the first day. 
because it is no matter how much you tell these new employees that you know everything's going to stay the same you're still going to have a job the first thing in their mind is when am i getting paid you know and i'm going to get you know i'm going to lose my job so make that transition smooth i know you know working with business owners over time they want to go in there and they see things that they want to change to make things better but you really need to pull yourself back and say just let them get used to you you know go have a barbecue everybody gets to know each other introduce them to the other employees it's all about communication and um you know hold yourself back and trying to make and try and make that culture fit until they get used to you and you can really say the same thing with your new customers that you're getting so what can can you tell us a little bit about those 11 acquisitions that you made when you were doing the bulk oil sales what was the the strategy that you most often employed when it came to talking with the 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 employees of the company being acquired yeah so fortunately i never had i really only had one situation where i had to let one employee go but we still employed her for a year before she retired uh, and that was the largest company that I bought and it probably came with, I don't know, say 10 employees. Um, and that's the one where I talked to their main salesman and the guy that was kind of running the company, so to speak. So, uh, but the other employees, we didn't tell until the day of the transaction. Uh, a lot of the other companies I was buying only had one or two employees and okay. in a situation like that. We was keeping it quiet until the day of the transaction. So what um, happened in her case? What, what did it become obvious pretty quickly that she wasn't going to fit with the culture you were trying to build? No, it was, a, she was an office person and I just, we just didn't, with the merging of the two companies, we just didn't need that position anymore. So you could again, do those head office functions from your own office. Okay. Yeah. So it's, you know, part of the strategic reason to buy the company, but um, <clears throat> the reason we didn't, let her go right out of the gate was because again, we didn't, you know, the customers knew her. She worked there for 20 plus years, you yeah. know, and you don't want to create that toxic environment. And, you know, that's another thing to be thinking about if you're going to all of a sudden wham, get rid of a couple of employees that are tied close to the customers. You know, in our case, we're delivering things. So they see them all the time, <clears throat> you know, that you're, you're setting yourself up for failure there a little bit to lose a couple customers. So think about, you know, Hey, if she's only making $40,000 a year, yes, that's real money. But what is that way out to versus getting all the knowledge that's in her head from working there 20 years and not upsetting customers? Well, and, and I find in particular, if you're talking about a smaller community, you know, Mm -hmm. coming in and acquiring a firm and then letting someone go who has that kind of tenure can get around you know, and, and, and it really can damage the, the goodwill and reputation, which is drawing you into the deal in the first place. Yeah. And we live in a very rural area in Southern Illinois and that is exactly the case, especially today with texting and cell phones. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it it can create a real problem. Yeah. Um, You know, hopefully you're in a situation when you're buying a company, you're buying a company because you're wanting to grow the company. And, you know, a lot of the times when we would buy a company, we're bringing more tools to the table. So Mm -hmm. we did a lot of fuel hedging, you know, bulk oil sales versus just, um, you know, package lubricants, whether it was new equipment for the people. So that was that was a good thing that we had, you know, because typically once we bought that company, we was given that driver or whatever uh you know 
benefits and other things that it was typically a pretty positive transaction. You know, <clears throat> the growth angle was part, a big part of the advice that I used to give my clients when I had my business brokerage office is that, you know, anyone who buys a business, they pay a price based on what they get, but the reasons for buying a certain company are often based upon the new owner's knowledge and understanding and their belief that they can bring it to a new level. They can grow the business and in that way, get themselves a good deal, right? If they grow the business, it starts to be more profitable. And so when you go in there on closing day and you make the announcement, it should always be delivered with that excitement because a lot of these sellers, enthusiasm, excitement, and passion is what is starting to wane. Yeah. And, and the employees often know this, right? Yes. <laughs> like they, they work in a sleepy, tired place and maybe they, they even bring new ideas forward that the owner doesn't like, I don't want to do anything new. And then this new person arrives and says, I'm going to bring this place to the next level. We're going to be growing. We're going to be adding people. We're going to be, you know, achieving new heights, new profits, et cetera. And I've actually seen firsthand through deals that I've helped work on where employees have stepped forward after the deal is done and said, you know, here are all the things that we've been yes. wanting to do, you know, the, the new computer systems and the new way of doing this, the new way of doing that, the trade shows we've been trying to get into, but the owner didn't want to do it. Like, you know, yeah. it's almost like the employees right. want to grab hold of those reins to pull on them. So listening skills, right? Because you're exactly right. We, I call it the owner gets on a glider path. You know, he just he quits investing in new equipment. He quits investing in new technology. And it's just kind of, you know, you're just like a glider coming down. But you are exactly right. And I've had that several times. And it's all the more region not to go in with blazing saddles wanting to change things right out of the gate. Sit down and listen to them employees because you're exactly right. Oftentimes, or, you know, what them tell you what they see and ways to improve it and maybe a customer that's upset about this or that, you know, that's a, that's a very valuable resource, you know, and in today's world with all the baby boomers retiring and, you know, the possibility of there being a shortage of employees, you know, you as a business owner, I, those employees are valuable. Those are valuable tools to have in a company. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I can remember, I mean, I'm just in my forties, but I can remember 20 years ago, uh, certain places would always have a lot of high un unemployment and there were always people around. And I have a friend of mine who has a coffee, uh, coffee franchise location. He was telling me that they always had a stack of resumes that people had dropped off. And what has changed in the last 20 years is just really amazing. And of course, it's a function of people retiring and the baby boomers getting older. But, uh, you know, last fall, I was in a, in, a, in a big apple growing area and I was visiting an apple growing uh, business where they they sort and they package and ex everything, these apples. And they were buying a machine that takes the full boxes and palletizes them and wraps them. So it's a robot that does all of this. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. Is it really that much more efficient to have a machine doing it rather than people? And they said, no, not really, but we can't hire people. We can't literally find people. And when we can get the people, we have other more important things that only humans can do. So yeah. If a, if a machine can be smart enough to pile some boxes and wrap them, then we have to let the machine do it. And it's, it was an amazing insight for me into just how tight labor is becoming in, in some areas. It is. It really is. It, it's, uh, that's why I'm, I'm happy to see a little bit of the resurgence in 
the trades because I mean there is a true shortage at least in our area of carpenters, HVAC techs, um, welders, you know, all of those things. There's a, there's a need for them, and that's why you know when you're buying a company, you know the financial statements are very important, and that's what's going to drive the main value of that company. But you really need to be taking a hard look at the non-financial things that are going on in that company, and uh, you, you know, how that's going to, how that's going to affect you when you buy that company. I had a conversation just last week with a manufacturer and, um, he only has like two or three people in the production office, but his, you know, again, he's done a great job. He can go to Florida for two months at a time and everything hums along just fine. But his office lady is in her sixties and the main guy that sets up his production machine is in his mid seventies. And I'm like, that's going to come up, you know, if it's a strategic acquisition and another person's buying it because they do the same manufacturing that you're doing, you'll be okay. But if an individual is coming in to buy this small manufacturing company because he came from another company or something like that, that's going to come up. I mean, that mid seventies guy, that's the main person out in your shop. If he quits, who's going to set up that machine? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> definitely, it's definitely a problem. And I mean, you know, yeah part of that acquisition actually you're going to require a succession plan for the guy on the on the line right you know how is he he's got to pass on his knowledge you know, maybe there's an obsolescence problem maybe maybe the machinery really is what it has to go but you know, the, it, the problem it, has to be addressed these are all due diligence questions i've never and i'm not saying nothing bad about unions but you know you got to be careful of what employment contracts are in place when you're going in there also because I was a non-union company and one of the companies, this bigger one that we wanted to buy was union and it just, it wasn't going to work. So, I mean, that, that alone took six or eight months to get that all straightened out. And in the end, you just decided to back off and not, not touch it. No, we, we, uh, he, it got to a technicality. He only had three people left in in the union contract and during the purchase one of them was going to opt out of the union so then they only had two and that's not a bargaining unit so we was able to drop the union contract oh so it was it fell into a situation where it was it became decertified or yeah ended yep. or what have you okay yeah. wow. but otherwise, i wouldn't i wouldn't have been able to buy that company it wasn't going to work right just because of the terms and everything that were in that contract yeah. i i with that same company he had a salesman that was under an employment agreement. That wasn't wasn't something I would have wasn't something I would have drawn up. I didn't like it. But you know, I noticed in the employment agreement there was no transferability to it. So he thought it was still in place whenever he came to work for me, but it wasn't. And that sounds a little tricky and maybe bad on my part. And I don't mean it like that at all. But you also have to know where to pick your battles. You know, and this was something that wasn't going to come up often. I mean, it was like four years down the road before we finally said, you know what, this thing's really not in play anymore. We need to redraw. And then notice that's the way we, we turned the language. We didn't say, you know, hey, Dave, this, con this, you know, ripped the employment agreement up in front of them, thrown in a trash can, said, that thing ain't worth the paper it's written on. We went to him and said, you know, this is old. It's outdated. It's from the previous employer. I think we need to rewrite it with some different terms. And and he was uh, acceptable to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I will caution people strongly when, when it comes to things like labor agreements that you really need to have the advice of a qualified local attorney, because 
Uh, I've learned over the course of time that that labor stuff can be tricky and can be oh. very local. And uh, for example, where I live, labor issues follow assets, not companies. And so even in an asset sale, certain labor things can actually follow to the new owner. And so there's there are some very old laws in some places around the world that you had need a local expertise to advise you on. And you know, that can get to be a tricky thing too, because if you're buying a smaller company, it may be a situation, you know, where they have to sign an employment agreement, you know, or a, an employee policy manual. Mm. And that's just where, again, you, you don't, my dad was, uh, my dad was in the army and he was a sergeant and I call it his military mentality because he was a sergeant. So he likes to tell you what to do, right? Well, <laughs> finesse it a little bit. All right. <laughs> I mean, uh, again, those employees are important. They're a valuable piece of that company. So be very careful not to create a toxic, toxic environment and be very well aware of the culture. Heck, the last company that I owned, I sold out of it a couple of years ago, um, we ended up selling 20% of the company to two people, 10% uh, to a gal that was a current COO, and 10% to the one that we, we hired from another company. Those two didn't get along, and it created a very toxic environment. So, um, you know, those culture tests and things like that, it's real. So. Terry, thanks. I think it's been a great conversation. If people want to learn more about you or get a copy of your book, why don't you show the book on the screen and let us know where we can find you online. So there is a website for the book. You don't know what you don't know. Uh, www.don'tknowwhatyoudontknow.com. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, the, our other, our company, Innovative Business Advisors. Uh, the website there is www.innovativeboyapple.com. And if you go to the media section on the innovative page, there's quite a few articles and podcasts and um, things that I've done. This book was mentioned in Forbes magazine last year. It's a top 10 business book. It's available on Amazon right now, or you can buy it from the website also. So, Awesome, Terry. Well, thanks for joining us today. If you're looking for a speaker or something like that, I'm uh, more than happy to do that. Awesome. It's good to finally make a friend in the non-Chicago part of Illinois. So, well, have a great day. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, Dave. Great right. being on the show. Bye-bye.